are in a new series this morning. It is called Fake Belief. It's a series based on the book of 1 John, and um, it's a series that is helping us to learn what it means to live out of our true selves with real faith. Uh, This morning, our lead pastor, Wes, will be teaching on fake news and the real gospel. It used to be where you could just turn on your TV in the morning and get, like, the headlines and the weather and the traffic report, and there would be, like, some little song that everyone remembered based on where you grew up. Now it is like Facebook meets, you know, weird websites meets, you know, your apps on your phone. And it's hard to distinguish what is like an angry parent on Facebook as opposed to real news. And so to help bring some humor to that this morning, we're going to hear from a comedian, John Oliver. And, um, you know, he says some real crazy stuff. I'm hoping you laugh this morning. It's been edited, but, you know, there's still... There's still some things in there that we're hoping if there's young ones, it just goes way over their heads. So you can explain some things later. You're welcome. Enjoy. Laugh a little. Hello there. I am John Oliver, host of that show you've heard some things about but haven't gotten around to watching yet. (laughs) You think it's called Last Night This Week or maybe Yesterday Right Now. Don't worry. You'll Google it later. Now... A few weeks ago on this show, you may remember this happened. Presidential clemency has always been controversial, from uh, George W. Bush commuting Scooter Libby's sentence uh, to Bill Clinton pardoning financier Mark Rich to, and this is true, Abraham Lincoln pardoning a man convicted of attempted bestiality because the man was intoxicated at the time. (laughs) The man in question, John Wilkes Booth. It's true. It's actually not true, but if it had been, that would have been amazing, right? It would, have been am- it would have been amazing. And you can read more stuff like that in my book, Stranger Than Truth, John Oliver's 101 Favourite History Lies. There is absolutely nothing more fun than lying confidently about history. Lying is incredibly fun. In fact, the only thing that feels better than lying to someone is lying to someone, then regaining their trust, and then lying to them again. <laughs> Studies have shown it produces the same effect in the human brain that cocaine does. Actually, there was no such study, but it felt great saying that out loud, so it just seems like a fact. So we are actually producing that book. Next spring, it will be released as a hardcover volume by Simon & Schuster, who I chose to work with given their wealth of experience printing the factual-sounding of Mr Dr Oz. So you knew they could do it well. Now... In my book, you will find plenty of plausible but unverifiable nonsense, such as the fact that, due to a severe horse allergy, Paul Revere spent most of his famous midnight ride sneezing and vomiting into the streets. (laughs) It's a fact. Uh, You'll also see the fact that Irish step dancing was invented by the farmers of Cork County who used to kill pesky field mice by strapping slabs of wood to their feet and rhythmically clobbering them to death. Which, yeah, it really makes you see river dance in a whole new way. He'll also learn that in order to prepare himself for important telephone calls, Winston Churchill would gather his highest-ranking officials to watch him tear telephone books in half. (laughs) One last fact. Did you know that in 1980, Saddam Hussein received a key to the city of Detroit? That is not in the book, because remarkably, that is actually true. (laughs) I know that you don't trust me anymore, but trust me, it is true. So I hope you enjoyed just a few of my favourite history lies. For the complete list, purchase my book uh, when it comes out in April 2016, except 
there is actually no book that was another lie. <laughs> this entire video has been a total waste of everyone's time. Uh, if you want to waste some more time, please join us again September the 13th, when Last Week Tonight returns. Until then, trust nobody, especially me. You can go down a serious black hole looking up fake news in late-night comedy. I, I discourage it, but uh, John Oliver has some beautiful comments on fake news, which we have an issue with these days, right? I mean, we have a serious issue with fake news, and, and sometimes humor helps us just sit with that a little bit in, in uh, not quite a shocking way. I, I tend to like things like The Onion and Babylon Bee as well, which introduce satire into the conversation. Babylon Bee is, is the Christian version of The Onion, and it published an article with this headline, CNN publishes real news story for April Fool's Day, uh, and it says... The, the story simply contained a list of facts with no embellishment, editorializing, or invented details. The story also didn't, shake, uh, didn't cite shaky anonymous sources and only quoted firsthand witnesses to the event. It was completely factual without any errors whatsoever, the perfect April Fool's Day joke. And fake news is such a pervasive thing in our day that I think we often don't even realize that the phrase fake news is an oxymoron. You can't have fake news. News is news, and anything else is a lie, right? So fake news is an oxymoron, kind of like false truth, right? It doesn't exist. If it's false truth, it's just falsehood, not truth. Uh, and, and so this is either true or false. It's either a news or a lie. And one scholar suggests that we should replace the phrase fake news with viral deception, which sounds a bit more sinister, I guess, but maybe that's a good thing. Viral deception. If, if we're living in an era of viral deception, how in the world are we supposed to sort out what is fake from what is real? Like, what is actual news and what is deception? How do we sort that out in our world today and how do we sort that out with our faith? I mean, how do we know that what we believe about God is based on real news versus something that just makes us feel good? How do we know that, that Christianity is not a viral deception? Is our faith based on something real, some real news that is good and not something fake? Now, last week on Easter Sunday, we celebrated the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And there are Tons of people who claim that that is a viral deception, that it was made up from the beginning as a way of explaining the absence of Jesus, which makes the whole package of Christianity a viral deception. But then there are others, including me, of course, that claim, no, this is, this is real news. This is good news. This is the best possible news that changes absolutely everything. In fact, much of the literature of the New Testament of the Bible was written to show that very thing and to give those receiving this literature confidence that something real happened that then was passed on and changed people's lives in the whole world. And the books of the Bible that do that most explicitly are the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are basically little miniature biographies of Jesus 
And they, they even have these little prefaces that say, look, I am writing this to you so that you will know what has happened. I'm writing you this orderly account based on eyewitnesses so you know this is real news. Now, gospel is a translation of this Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news. So the point of these books that begin the New Testament of the Bible is exactly to present real news, good news of Jesus' birth and his life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension. One of those gospel writers, the Apostle John, also wrote letters to the churches to do exactly the same thing, to share this, this news about Jesus so that people can have real faith and a genuine new real life. And so John, in writing his letters, he doesn't want people messing around with what is fake. And there was a lot of fake news circulated during, that, those, um, during those decades of the early church. He wants them to embrace what is genuine and what is real, and therefore what has actual power to transform people and cities and the whole world. As we move through the book of First John, then over the eight, next eight weeks— we're going to see this juxtaposition all throughout the letter of here's what's fake, here's what's real. Here's what's masquerading as the truth. Here is actual truth. And we're going to be guided along the way through John's first letter to develop authentic faith and authentic love for God and for others that is based on this real news. So that's how the, the letter of First John begins. It begins with John saying, Here's what's real. Here is news that I want you to receive, and it's transforming my life, and I want it to transform yours. So we're going to start with the very beginning of the letter, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Why don't you stand as I read this so we can pay respect and attention to God's Word. I'll be reading from the NIV and encourage you to follow along. So he writes this, "...that which was from the beginning..." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And I'll stay standing because I'm going to read it in another version. Sometimes it's really helpful when you're studying the Bible, uh, given this wealth of translations we have, to see it from a different angle, from another translation. So here's the message. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that we, that what we witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. This is God's Word to us. Can I have a seat?
This morning, what I want to do is I want to point out four basic components of a real gospel, of real good news that has the power to transform our lives. Contrast that with fake news and then look at how embracing this real gospel will lead us to real joy, real transformation, real life. Okay, so the first component of the real gospel is the event itself. Something happened. Something big happened. And that's the basis of all news, right? Something really important happened. And the message translates or summarizes the event this way. The word of life appeared. Or to use the language of the NIV, that which was from the beginning, which was with the Father, appeared to us. This is the event. This is the event that has shaken up the ancient Roman world. This is the event that John is excited about, that he can't not share, that he's, he's sharing with passion, that has transformed his life. Now, um, if you're familiar with John's gospel, he's using very similar language in his letter to what has happened to this event. So John's gospel begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and this Word that was with God, that was God, then became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Himself known. The Word appeared. The Word became flesh. This is the news. Now, in John's gospel, he's referring to the beginning of that appearance. The the first time the Word of God appeared as a baby, person of Jesus, was born into this world. But in his letter, John is also describing the second time the Word appeared because Jesus died. We just went through this, through Tenebrae. Jesus died, and then Jesus rose again. And John's gospel records these appearances of the risen Jesus to his disciples when he rose again in his resurrected body before ascending into heaven. So for John, this is not just any news, right? This is the biggest possible news that he could be sharing with the churches. It's, it's the biggest news that has ever been news. It's such big news that it's really understandable why the main thing that what John is battling and other church leaders are battling is that people think it's fake news. They can't believe it. It it is uncomprehensible. Uh, They want to know the reasons why this is news. Now, we've acknowledged that fake news is a thing, that's an issue. Steve and I went down some black holes looking at uh, various possibilities of videos and whatnot. But in doing some research of fake news today, I didn't realize this, but did you know that 10 to 20% of Americans still believe that the moon landings are fake news? that they were staged, that they're a conspiracy? I, I didn't know that. Uh, I'm fascinated by that, that they were, NASA staged these for political and financial reasons, despite the fact that there are eyewitnesses, photographs, satellite images, third-party verifications. Millions of people believe that this is, this is conspiracy. Now, if you believe that this is real, uh, that the Apollo moon landings really happened, we, we believe that on the basis of... of accounts, right, verifications, photographs, evidence, uh, trusted authorities. None of us walked on the moon, right? So we have to trust that people who have been there are telling us the truth. 
and that, is, that has been passed down, and they have significant authority to, uh, to pass this down as truth. That's similar to what John is arguing and the battle that the early Christians are facing. Because from the earliest days, there were people who argued that the resurrection of Jesus was a conspiracy. The disciples stole the body. Uh, they wanted to start a, a new religion. And so they crafted this whole elaborate scheme. But it's fake news. And there are plenty of people who bought into that. And John is battling that. One of the big reasons that he's writing this letter to the church is to share the, the biggest news possible, the word of life appearing in the flesh is the biggest possible news. If that's the case, then to deny that news is the biggest possible deception. So it makes sense why John has so much passion about this. He wants these growing churches to have real confidence that their faith is based on something real. It's not misplaced and it's not merely therapeutic. And to defend that this really happened, he introduces the second really critical component of any real news, which is the witnesses. In order for us to know that news is real, there has to be witnesses. And here, the appearance of God in the flesh is not just news, it's eyewitness news, right? The message translation says, from the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The, the word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And John's writing in the plural here because it wasn't just him. There's all kinds of people who saw the risen Jesus. There was the women at the tomb. There were the disciples that he appeared to after that. There was this guy named Thomas who, who actually touched the scars in Jesus' hands and in his side. And this became a part of why the news spread so quickly. Because elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the leaders of the church shares this detail that more than 500 people saw the risen Jesus. More than 500 people. That, that's a lot of people to see something and to report on something. You think like in a court case, it's usually pretty good if you can get two or three people to agree on the same evidence, right? To be witnesses together. But here we have, right off the bat, more than 500 people witnessing, testifying to the news of a risen Jesus, which is partly why this movement spread so quickly. And that brings us to the third component of the real gospel, which is the actual news report. So look at the text here in this word that's used, proclaim. It's used three times, if you want to put that up in the text. First, he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then down a little bit, we proclaim to you the eternal life. And in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Uh, that word proclaim is translated from the Greek word apangelo, and it literally means report the news. Okay? Report what you've seen and heard. Most English translations render it proclaim. Sometimes you'll see the word herald, which I kind of like because it has this connotation of this, this, per, this town crier in the public square heralding the good news for, for anyone to hear. But the most straightforward way to translate it is simply report. Something happened, people witnessed it, and there's a news report. And it would be a strange thing not to report the best possible news, right? It would be strange to hold that to yourself. But what's actually incredible is that in reporting this news, many of these disciples of Jesus were risking their lives. So 
actually the extra motivation of reporting this is, is incredible to me. They, they so strongly wanted people to know that they were risking their lives to share this news. Because the best possible news, you, you can't keep it in. Um, I remember uh, 15 years ago now, I guess, when I asked Stephanie to marry me. She said yes, and I was finally engaged. Like, this was the best possible news for me in my life so far. And, of course, when you have news like that, what do you do? You're like, you're sharing it to anybody. Yes, family and friends, but, like, anybody that you run into. You know that poor grocery store checkout person who will ask you, hey, how's your day going? They don't really want to know how your day is going. Well, maybe at Trader Joe's they do, but no, nowhere else. They really don't want to get into a conversation with you. Well, this poor, this poor guy at the end of his shift, I was getting groceries at Schnucks, which is the best grocery store name ever in St. Louis, the chain store like Harris Teeter. And he did, you know, how's your day going? I was like, dude, I'm having the best day of my life. I'm engaged. It's like I'm walking on the moon. He's like, you know that's a conspiracy, right? And um, he, wasn't, he wasn't very impressed. Point is, the best possible thing happens to us, and you have to report it. You proclaim it. You herald it. You become an evangelist. How many of you have a really bad connotation with the word evangelism. Just be honest. Where you're coming from, church background, or, or like half of you. Yeah, I get that. Maybe it's an association with like pushy confrontations with people or cheesy presentations or whatever. It, it does. I get it how it has this bad connotation. You know, you know the root of that word is just reporting the good news? Just sharing the good news? Um, like something amazing has happened, right? Jesus is alive and he's making all things new. And so those who receive it become evangelists. They become good news people, gospelers who, who can't not but share that good news. Now, some people have that particular gift of how to do that in particular situations, but it just becomes a part of who we are. It shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a scary thing. It shouldn't be a an awkward thing, because the excitement that we have over receiving the best news possible, uh, it's, it's not just about the event itself and how amazing that is, but it's about the impact that that event has on, on the people who receive it and on others who may receive it. So that, that's the fourth component of identifying what's, what's real news. You've got the event, the witnesses, the report, but then the whole reason why you're sharing that report is the impact. And John writes about that in verse 3. The first part of verse 3, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. Now, unfortunately, (laughs) fellowship is another one of those words. You're like, eh, kind of a churchy, traditionally kind of word. Like, what does that even mean? Some of you grew up in churches with fellowship halls, where you go to enjoy sugar cookies and bad coffee. Look, I loved, I grew up in a church with the fellowship hall. It was the best place in the church, man. Fellowship halls were, were like the real stuff happened. Better than the narthex or like other parts of the churches where dumb stuff happened. You know, fellowship uh, might sound cheesy and old-fashioned, but again, un- the underlying meaning there is really beautiful. The original word is koinonia, it's hard to translate, but it's probably best 
translated like uh, something like deep spiritual connection and partnership. We have a slide. Deep spiritual connection and partnership. It doesn't just mean small talk over a cup of coffee, okay? It means being deeply connected to each other as a result of sharing the deepest possible thing, which is our faith. Deeply connected, participating in the same mission, and that deep relationship, connection, and partnership is based on the deep connection we have with God himself. And that's what John mentions next, the last half of verse 3, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the idea is that faith brings you into a deep spiritual connection and partnership with other people based on our mutual deep connection with God and God's Son by His Spirit. Communion is another word for it. I think the message translation uses communion. We celebrate communion, right, because of our deep connection with God through Christ by His Spirit, while also celebrating the communion that's right here between brothers and sisters, this new family, this church, the body of Christ. It's, it's a mystery. It's kind of a miracle of what God does. Does anyone not know where the name Warehouse 242 comes from? Raise your hand if you're like, what in the world does Warehouse 242 mean? Okay, it doesn't, it's not our name because we meet in an actual warehouse or a trucking terminal. We had the name before we moved here because Warehouse, the idea there is that we come in like goods in a warehouse and we're sent out all over the city as missional followers of Jesus to have an impact. The 242 part comes from Acts 242, which is the seminal description of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There it is again, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So we're named Warehouse 242 because we want to be like this. We want to be devoted to the gospel, to the teaching. We want to be devoted to each other, this deep connection we have, this spiritual connection and partnership in the gospel and to the breaking of bread and prayer, life together, and communion with God. Um, We are deeply connected and we partner together as a result of the gospel. Okay, this is one of the gifts that we receive when we believe the good news of Jesus. But what's interesting about this passage is that it's, it's not only, fellowship is not only a gift that we have through Christ, but it's a responsibility as well. We need to be devoted to it. We need to be committed to it and invested in it, uh, devoted to developing this deep connection and partnership with each other. It requires all of us to say, I'm all in and I'm going to be devoted to being all in in relationship with these other people. That's why it is kind of ridiculous and impossible really to say, I love Jesus but not the church. Just doesn't work that way. Because one of the gifts that we receive when we get Jesus is we get the church in all of its mess. Uh, But it's a beautiful mess because it's the new thing that God is doing in the world. God's mission is through the church, through people like you and me being deeply connected to each other spiritually and partnering for the sake of the gospel in the world, of God's mission to make all things new. Like this is what God is doing and we get in on it when we receive Jesus. So the cumulative effect of all of that is this last part in verse 4. It's, it's joy. John says, we write this to make our joy complete. We rightly distinguish joy from happiness often because joy 
is something that's rooted much deeper. Joy is linked to our identity. Joy is linked to who we are versus happiness is often just linked to uh, circumstances. And that's why from a Christian perspective, you can be joyful always, even in the midst of suffering, even in, in times of sadness, whereas happiness is this thing that often comes and goes. I don't think I've ever met someone who doesn't want to experience more joy. Like, think about where you are. Would you, if I could magically offer you more joy this morning, would you, would you want that? Joy, it's like we know what it is, but it's really hard to describe, and we want it. Um, to be honest, guys, I've been, I've been battling with joy lately because um, it, it's a gift that we have in Christ, and yet it's something what we need to fight for. And I've been, I've been battling because of some own circumstances in my life, because of people I love who are, who are experiencing pain because of the pain in our city and the violence and the injustice here around the world. Um, it's, it's hard, right, to hang on to your joy. Um, but I, as I have been preparing for this this week, I've had to remind myself, and I want to remind you, that if Jesus is alive, and he is, and if Jesus is coming back, and he is, to make all things new, and if everything in the middle, even the hard stuff, especially the hard stuff, makes us more like Jesus, then joy is possible, my friends. It's necessary, actually. Joy becomes the distinctly Christian way of living in the world. It becomes the primary impact of that which we have heard and seen passed down, this good news of Jesus. Joy is, joy is it. This is what God wants to give us. And I've, I've wrestled with that, and I know that, and I want to do that with you as Warehouse 242. We're going to have some, some difficult news to wrestle with together as a church over the next week or month, but we must maintain our joy. Will you help me battle for joy? together as a church? Will you be committed to each other's joy? What that means is we need to keep reminding each other of the good news, despite circumstances. We need to stay rooted there. We need to keep our hope fixed there. There's even this, this phrase throughout the New Testament of be joyful in hope. Like, yeah, that's right, because we can't be joyful without hope, because we know where the story is going. There are plenty of realities and all kinds of facts and news that will make us unhappy. But what I'm saying to you is that joy is possible because of the best possible news. That's true. And uh, last week, I read from a poem by Wendell Berry, one of my favorite poems. He's got this line in there, be joyful though you have considered all the facts, all the news stories. Be joyful and practice resurrection. Being joyful is the primary way that we practice resurrection. It doesn't mean that we don't lament. We don't acknowledge ugly news and hard news. Yes, we do that too. We lament honestly, and we cling boldly to joy. You know, this is why the Psalms are such a gift to us. The Psalms are the inspired prayer book of God's people, 
and they're full of these laments that are gut-wrenchingly honest complaints and confessions of, of lostness. But you know what? Almost every lament in the Psalms, while also being gut-wrenchingly honest, ends with joy. Have you ever noticed that? In a remarkable way. Like Psalm 13 begins, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Deep, honest lament. One of the most gut-wrenching laments in the Bible. And yet, look at how this, this lament ends. This is incredible. Verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. My heart is filled with joy. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. He has been good. He is being good. He will be good. This is the basis of our hope. It's, it's why we have joy. And it's everything that John wants to share with us in this book. So I hope you'll stick with it, with me as we continue exploring. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot of ways for us to grow as a community as we sit with uh, this little letter in the New Testament. Let's pray for today and just ask God to internalize what he's been saying so far. Actually, God, I think it's good to acknowledge that a lot, even most of the news that we get these days uh, gets us down. Like, it's not good news, bad news. It's uh, news of slaughter and injustice and violence, and man, it's just really overwhelming sometimes. Um, and we have our own news that we wrestle with, family news, personal news. Um, can we just take a second, God, and name some of the news that is hard to handle right now? some of the bad news in our lives, we just want to just silently express that to you, God. Despite these facts and despite this bad news that we wrestle with, we cling to gospel, good news, real news that you, Jesus, are risen. This news that changes everything, this news that means we can have hope, we can have joy, we can have communion with you and each other. God, whatever is going on in our lives, Would you help this sink into our hearts and our minds this morning that this is real, that it's for us, that that this is something to live by, that we can have hope and joy? Would you give that to us now? God, truly you are good. Despite things that we're wrestling with and things going on in the world, we claim that this morning. We claim your goodness and your love, your salvation for us through Christ. Thank you that we get to be a good news people. This is what we get to share. This is what we get to live out. Empower us to do that by your spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org or come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.